Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, translated into 195 different languages. We are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. Thanks very much for your questions and comments. Please keep them coming in. Remember to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that already. Tell your friends and family about it and support the companies that help make this podcast possible. Homegrowncannabisco.com and Harborside. I also want to introduce you before we get started to a new company, Good Seed, that makes these delicious hemp burgers. They crisp up really beautifully. They've got a nice deep flavor and I'm really enjoying them. If you can find them close to you, I suggest you check them out. We're going to move now to our global wrap-up of cannabis news and we'll kick our headlines off with some big and very good news out of the United States. On November 2nd, in one of the most bitterly divided elections in U.S. history, when nobody agreed on anything, Republican and Democratic voters alike approved voter initiatives reforming cannabis laws in five different states, making cannabis legalization the only true bipartisan voter consensus in the 2020 election cycle. In addition, Voters in Oregon passed initiatives legalizing the therapeutic use of psilocybin and mandating treatment instead of incarceration for hard drugs like cocaine and heroin. And the nation's capital city of Washington, D.C., my former hometown, also approved a measure legalizing personal possession of psilocybin and several other visionary plants. Meanwhile, In Canada, these reforms drove substantial gains in the value of cannabis companies traded on the CSE and the TSX exchanges. The news from New Zealand's October 17th general election is less encouraging. Voters there rejected a measure for adult use legalization by a margin of 53% to 46%. This defeat came after the very popular prime minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, admitted to past cannabis consumption in an October 1st debate with her opponent, Judith Collins, but declined to endorse the legalization initiative. However, after the election, Ardern revealed that she had indeed voted in favor of it. Disappointed New Zealand cannabis advocates believe that Ardern's reluctance to publicly endorse the initiative was responsible for the loss. Meanwhile, in New Zealand's neighbor of Australia, the government continues to raid cannabis farms. The latest came on November 3rd with a seizure of 1,845 plants in the province of New South Wales. A week earlier, a much larger bust in New South Wales, said to be the largest ever in a single raid in Australia, seized over 13,000 plants, which police alleged had a value of 40 million Australian dollars. 14 Vietnamese citizens were arrested at that site, which police allege was being operated by a large Vietnamese organization. This is just the latest piece of evidence showing the reach and determination of Vietnamese cannabis growers, 
who also have a very significant presence in the North American cannabis markets and other countries. We'll go in depth on the very vigorous and sophisticated underground cannabis scene later in the podcast. These busts are mirrored by recent events in southern Spain, the primary landing point for smuggled Moroccan hashish. The trade there is so brisk that bad weather often produces a flood tide of bales of hash just washing up on local beaches, abandoned by smugglers who are caught in the weather in some kind of distress. And in the latest incident, 86 bales of hash weighing three tons washed up on the Isla Canela beach and were also fished out of the nearby Guadina River. The seizures in Australia and Spain are yet more evidence of an undeniable fact. Human beings are hardwired to consume cannabis. It is our birthright, and we will continue to consume it no matter what actions any government or religion takes to prevent us. The only way to end the underground cannabis trade is to fully and completely legalize cannabis in every country on the planet. Until then, the International Cannabis Tribe will continue to carry this plant through the darkness of prohibition. And another sign that that darkness continues to lift in parts of South America, the country of Uruguay announced new regulations allowing international shippers to legally transport cannabis through the Montevideo Free Airport. The airport, which is a major regional business and transportation center, is already seeing benefits from the change in regulations. The very prospect of cannabis shipments revived a project to build controlled storage areas for pharmaceuticals that had been stalled by COVID. That project is projected to create 1,425 jobs, another testament to the power of legal cannabis to spread prosperity far beyond the cannabis community itself. On the other side of the world, in Israel, the march of cannabis science continues with the publication of a study in the European Journal of Pain. The 1,045 Israeli study participants reported an average 20% reduction from their baseline pain, and their daily dosage of opioids dropped by 42%, 42%. And in addition, they saw significant improvements in their sleep, their body mass index, and reduced depression. Now, this is exactly the kind of study that's needed to drive full adoption of the therapeutic potential of cannabis by the mainstream medical community and it bodes well for the investments being made into cannabis infrastructure in places all around the world, places like the Montevideo Airport. Legal or illegal, cannabis will continue to spread around the world. More and more people are trying it for the first time, and almost all of them like it. The choice for governments is simple. Legalize the plant and thereby reap great benefits for all of society or continue to suffer from an underground trade that is often dominated by organized crime and corrupt cops. We now turn to legendary underground journalist Bill Weinberg with an in-depth look at Lebanon, the first Middle Eastern country to perform their cannabis laws. There, like in many other emerging cannabis economies, traditional legacy cannabis growers are fighting to retain a piece of the industry that they themselves pioneered and defended against great odds. Bill, what do you have for us? Lebanon, long the Middle East's heartland of hashish, has legalized cannabis cultivation for the medical market. 
But before the law has even taken effect, rumblings of cynicism are heard from the country's traditional growers in the Beka Valley. Lebanon this year approved a law that legalizes cultivation of cannabis for medical and industrial purposes in a bid to boost the country's struggling economy and curb illicit production. The plan envisions cultivation for pharmaceuticals, CBD oil, and industrial products such as fiber and textiles. The law was passed on April 21st, so 421, despite the opposition of Hezbollah and other powerful cultural conservative parties. It only affects cannabis that contains less than 1% of the psychoactive compound THC. Nonetheless, the measure is historic, making Lebanon the first Arab nation to legalize cannabis cultivation. The bill was based on a 2018 report by a Manhattan-based consultancy, McKinsey and Company, which recommended Lebanon cash in on the burgeoning market for high added value medicinal products with export focus. Then economy minister, Rayed Kauri, said a legal cannabis sector in the country could generate $1 billion in annual revenue, and even boasted to Bloomberg that the quality of Lebanese hash is one of the best in the world. The law now awaits implementation with a regulatory authority to be established empowered to issue licenses for cultivation, processing, and sale of cannabis and derivative products. Among the law's stated goals is to lift the pressure on Lebanon's overwhelmed criminal justice system by providing a legal outlet for the cannabis trade. Yet rather than decriminalizing consumption or even reducing sentences, it actually calls for, quote, strengthening criminal penalties on violations against the articles of this law, end quote. Between 3,000 and 4,000 people are arrested for drug offenses annually in Lebanon, the big majority for the consumption of hashish. The law has drawn criticism from longtime activists, such as Sandy Tariq of the Lebanese drug policy reform advocacy organization, Skaoun. Quote, for sure, this is not what the farmers of the Beka Valley want, she told Al Jazeera. There is no clear mechanism to integrate the existing illegal market into the legal market. You can't just ignore the implications and consequences of criminalizing drug use and say this new market is for priority, end quote. The cannabis grower militias of the Beka Valley formed to resist eradication forces in 2015, actually mobilized in collaboration with the security forces to beat back ISIS incursions from across the border in Syria. Their vigilance prevented the self-declared Islamic State from establishing a foothold in Lebanon, but they have not been paid back for this heroism. In recent weeks, both the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times filed reports from Yamuna, a key hashish producing village in the Beka Valley. Residents they spoke to were skeptical and bitter. Ali Sharif, a village Mukhtar or traditional chief, predicted to the LA Times that the cannabis licenses would go exclusively to members of the country's corrupt political elite. Quote, they've stolen everything except for the cannabis, he said. Now they want that too. Meanwhile, with the COVID-19 pandemic and deep economic crisis in Lebanon, the hashish market is suffering an unprecedented depression. As the New York Times notes, 
the Lebanese pound has lost 80% of its value against the US dollar over the past year, and farmers have taken the hardest hit. The cost of imported fuel and fertilizer have soared, while the Lebanese pound that growers earn by selling their hashish has been worth less and less. And enforcement operations continue. In April, just days before the law was passed, Lebanon's Internal Security Forces, ISF, seized some 25 tons of hashish in a convoy of eight trucks bound for Beirut's port. The smugglers escaped and a manhunt was launched. In June, the ISF seized 15 tons and arrested seven men in a raid on a Beirut warehouse. And in October, the ISF raided several greenhouses in the village of Batroun, North Lebanon, destroying some 100 seedlings. However, it has been years since the government has attempted to carry out eradication operations in the Beka Valley, where the growers are armed, organized, and proud of their age-old tradition of hashish production. Even with the market now depressed, any effort to eradicate in the Beka would likely meet stiff resistance. For Radio Free Cannabis, this has been Bill Weinberg with the Global Ganja Report. Thank you, Bill. The themes coming out of Lebanon reflect the state of cannabis reform in many other countries. Legalization, yes, but only for medical and only for export, and dominated by the country's existing economic elite. Meanwhile, crackdowns on cannabis consumers and traditional growers continue or even increase. The question for the cannabis tribe is whether this kind of incremental progress helps open the door to more meaningful change or just reinforces existing patterns of oppression. Should we support these tiny steps forward, or should we hold out and settle for nothing less than full freedom? For more thought on these and other questions, we go now to our Emerging Markets correspondent, Clydeen McDonald, who is reporting from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. I asked Clydeen what the cannabis in Vietnam was like, and he told me that it was one of the few places in Asia where you could text a delivery service and receive a package of cannabis in 15 minutes. So naturally, I wanted to know what was on the menu. So in Vietnam, you get maybe about three, what you'd call three large um, subsections of cannabis. So you would have what they call cambo, which is uh, a strain that comes is very popular in Southeast Asia. Um, it has a THC percentage of somewhere between 10 and, if you want to say, 12%. So very low-level land raise that we're talking about. Um, then you would have what is imported kush. So you would have put uh, maybe like regular, you know, strains that we are accustomed to seeing in the U.S. or other parts of the world that are smuggled into the country by various borders. And then you would have locally grown kush, which is in many cases here grown indoors um, in aquaponics labs and so on. That's fascinating news, Clydeen. Here in North America, there's a large Vietnamese presence in the underground cannabis market. And we already heard about the Vietnamese presence in the Australian underground market earlier in this episode. So I imagine there's got to be a lot of information sharing going on from place to place. How would you rate the sophistication of cannabis growers in Vietnam itself? From the cultivating and tending perspective, like the fields that I have visited in 
Vietnam in many cases, you see um, what I would call some of the most intricate work with cannabis that anybody probably does anyway. Um, but from the local perspective, when it comes to legislation and um, just developing of a large local industry, most of that is underground still um, and probably won't come above ground for the next three to four years, I would estimate. And where's that imported cannabis coming in from? Uh, it comes in from, from different places. So we spoke about Thailand earlier. Some of it comes from Thailand. Some of it comes from Cambodia, which is right next door and easy to smuggle across via land borders. Some comes from uh, Laos as well. And even as far as me and mine, in some cases, um, you would have cannabis being smuggled into the country from. So many of the land borders are very loose and what you'd call porous. So it, it's easier to do land smuggling um, rather than, you know, other means that, um, that we've seen employed in other places. In these other Southeast Asian countries, are we talking about second generation modern genetics or traditional land race strains? Uh, no, they, in some cases, you would have more modern second generation um, strains being produced, especially in, um, I have found in Cambodia. Last year, I, well, yeah, last year I did a, a trip to Cambodia um, to do some reporting on their industry there. And from what I saw from, you know, illegal cultivation, there was a lot of um, hybrids being formed, a lot of new strains being developed just from land raises around the region. And then obviously you have the influx of um, raw materials and, and seeds and so on from other places that they also have the land and very cheap labor to produce. So um, you're seeing a lot of that in Cambodia. I haven't been to Laos as yet, so I'm not too sure about there. And um, whenever the pandemic is over, I'll get to Thailand and I'll tell you about Thailand then. This is so exciting. This unstoppable globalization of cannabis, really the cannabis freedom movement spreading all over the world. And you know, back when I was growing up, there was this saying about the British Empire, which at one time ruled like places all over the planet. And the saying was, the sun never sets on the Union Jack, referring to the British flag. Well, of course, the sun did set on the Union Jack several decades ago, but a new star is rising. Today, I think we can legitimately say that the sun never sets on the global cannabis freedom movement. Claudine, what can you tell us about cannabis culture in Southeast Asia? There seems to be a pretty big scene, at least in Vietnam. Who's using cannabis there and what kind of culture is associated with them? So it really does depend country by country. Um, many countries here, especially I would say Thailand, Cambodia, um, some parts of Vietnam have a long indigenous um, culture around using cam uh, cannabis for various medical ailments. Um, then you also have what would be, well, at least what I call the new generation of cannabis users. So persons within those societies, within their 20s, 30s, who are into the cannabis culture and into the cannabis scene a lot. And then you have, these countries have extremely large expat populations. So you have obviously expats, I would estimate like a, a third of expats in some countries that use cannabis either recreationally or medically at some point. 
And what about spiritual use? Is there any tradition of spiritual use in Southeast Asia? And are there any manifestations of it there today? Uh, yes. Yeah, so there are many spiritual manifestations in various countries. Um, these countries have large and various religious practices. So in some cases, you would even find, uh, you know, like a fairly large Rastafarian movement among um, some countries. You would also find, you know, more traditional um, what you call religions in these areas, so Jainism and, and so on, that use cannabis in this area. Um, so I would identify easily Vietnam in some cases, Cambodia in other cases, um, Thailand as well. You see some spiritual use for cannabis also. Wow, how fascinating. Where in Southeast Asia do we see Rastafarian movements? Uh, believe it or not, you see, you see like a large Rastafarian movement in parts of uh, Cambodia and in parts of Thailand as well. I mean, being from the Caribbean, I could tell you that no matter where you go, you find a very like global influence to the Rastafarian movement. And in many of these countries, you see it, um, or at least I, I, probably, I probably see it because I look for it, but in many of these countries, you see it in some areas. So there are, you know, uh, people who practice Rastafarianism as, as a religion in some of these countries. In our last episode, we reported on the Thai government's steps to build a profitable medical cannabis industry. Thailand is the dominant regional power in Southeast Asia and influences developments in other countries in all sorts of ways. Do you think that's true with cannabis as well? Will the Thai efforts encourage other Southeast Asian nations to move towards legalization? Um, on cannabis, I would say yes. It's really important for Southeast Asia or development for cannabis in the Asian market and the Pacific in general. Um, for Thailand to go ahead and become a successful and um, viable market for cannabis. While, yes, they have legalized first and they have taken baby steps, many countries in the region are watching and waiting to see or using Thailand as a test tube um, for how they will approach their own legislation going forward or how far they will end up going. Um, you have loose enforcement in some countries, yes, but the development of a real industry um, would depend heavily on how well Thailand goes for many of these countries. Cambodia, where I was earlier this year um, and to the end of last year, they are, they are leaning heavily on, on Thailand's research. I would say the same thing for other countries in the region as well. So it's very, very important from, from that perspective. One of the things I've heard about the Thai reform legislation is that they intend to create a role in the legal industry for traditional and indigenous healers and growers. What can you tell us about that? I think it's, it's very important that we look at how Thailand is um, including indigenous medicine um, and traditional healers into the industry. Um, going forward, I think they will serve as a very good example for how you could probably roll out a legal industry alongside using more traditional methods of cannabis. Um, and, and, and they're very much showing an example, at least in how they've rolled out so far, that they are interested in encouraging and preserving some of those practices. And I think that's important for indigenous peoples all over the world, whether you look at the Americas, the Caribbean, or 
even tribes and, and indigenous peoples in Africa and the Pacific. That is very important from that perspective, I think. It's a tremendous breakthrough from my perspective. I don't know of any reform legislation anywhere in the world that's created a role for traditional cannabis practitioners thus far. Do you? No, I, I have not seen so far. In, in fact, I, I just looked at legislation um, from Trinidad and Tobago, where I'm writing a story on right now. And one of the major concerns that um, persons in that country have is that there is not a role for indigenous practices relating to cannabis or indigenous medicine relating to cannabis. And I think Thailand, how they have ruled it out, how they've spoken to it so far, it's important that other countries maybe take note of that level of preservation and respect um, that these traditional practices are, you know, are, are supposed to play in how we go forward in the, in the movement. And let us remember, this isn't just a question of charity or welcoming people into the industry who deserve to be in it. This is a question of preserving ancient knowledge. Indigenous people have carried plant-based medicines, including cannabis-based medicines, for thousands of years. They've developed knowledge and traditions and rituals that will be incredibly valuable as we seek to fully understand the cannabis plant, as we seek to reintegrate her into all of our societies everywhere around the world. So this isn't just a question of inclusion and justice, although it is profoundly such a question. It's also a matter of the rest of the world recognizing and preserving the incredible wisdom, the land-raised strains, the rituals, the teachings that have been developed over the course of generation upon generation. Here at Radio Free Cannabis, we salute the move of Thailand to include indigenous and traditional healers, and we hope that it is emulated by countries all around the world. Clydine, thanks for being with us today. We look forward to your next report. Shooting across the world once again to Sweden, we're now going to check in with my friend Clara Norell. Clara is a construction engineer working with Hempcrete, and she's going to tell us about her efforts to build a full industrial infrastructure for hemp in Sweden, which currently does not have a single hemp decorticator in the entire country. I'm working with, uh, as a consultant for the Swedish Agricultural University holding company. So my task is to come up with yes or no. We have, uh, it's a sustainable and viable and impactful business model to uh, grow and process hemp fiber in Sweden. And so I, that, that I can show to the Swedish investors that, or to international investors that wants to invest in Sweden, that yes, we should uh, invest in fiber decortication. Uh, so that, because it's so many companies already in Sweden that are importing thousands of tons of hemp fiber or shives or, or whatever they need. So we could build that in Sweden and have a closed circular bioeconomy within Sweden because we can see now also with COVID and borders closing, pandemics, that's, that we cannot be reliable on the global industries. I do believe that we need to come together as a global 
uh, we, we have so much global knowledge, like you have your knowledge, I have my knowledge, there are others that have their knowledge, and I believe that it needs to be like a global hemp forum, and that together we can help like all the different companies with, with you know, the know-how, the supply chains, the product development, and so on, to, to kind of lift each other and collaborate, but creating satellites of, of a hemp industry from seed to building, from seed to textile, from seed to plastic, from seed to biofuels in each country, but kind of like driven on a global perspective so that the in-house is super strong. I think it's very important work, Clara. We talk a lot about how hemp can save the planet, but it can't do it all by itself. It's a plant. After all, it's rooted in the ground. And if we want to realize its full potential, it's going to take this kind of difficult, gritty work that you're doing, you work to assemble a complete industrial infrastructure. So uh, I know from talking to you earlier that Sweden's not the only place you hope to build hemp houses. What can you tell us about your work in South Africa? My dream and vision in life is to make impact, is to be able to create change and to be able to help people, empower them so that they can build their own houses. It's very easy to build a hemp house. So if I can do it, if I can become a certified hemp lime builder, I'm not very big. It's, very, uh, it's a very light material to work with. Uh, however, it's very strong. So anybody can really build with it, you know, I'm, and I can teach it. So I really want to give what I have learned to empower people to come to South Africa with the team, with, the, with all the certified builders and the knowledge from France, especially, uh, to, to, be, to start building these houses in South Africa and to start growing the seed and to invest in the decortications there also so that South Africa who has like 10 million 10 times more people than little Sweden uh, we can make much more impact. I'm not able to share all of the conversation I had with Clara in the time we have left in this episode but I do need to give you one more little tidbit. Amongst all the other benefits of hempcrete it's also rodent proof which can be really important in some environments. Clara told me that wherever there's a hole that rodents are getting in through, that hole can be plugged with a little ball of hemp mixed with lime, and it'll completely block rats and other rodents from entering the home. It's a, another example of the simple but profound way that cannabis helps improve our lives. Overall, what I took away from talking to Clara is another layer in my understanding. As we, as a people, have begun to explore the cannabis plant, we're learning how healthy a plant-based lifestyle really is. We first started waking up to this with plant-based medicines, and some of us have been wearing hemp clothing for decades. Lately, we discovered what a powerful tool adopting a plant-based diet can be in fighting climate change, and how good that diet feels in our bodies, and that hemp has more protein than any meat. Now, Pioneers like Clara are pushing forward this new idea of plant-based housing, plant-based housing. And like everything else that's hemp-based, 
there are these concentric circles of benefits just rippling out from it, from the planting of the seeds and the harvesting of the crop through the hands of every single person who touches it thereafter. Just think about all the incredible things that happen with hempcrete, that we can fight over remediate contaminated soil, that we can sequester tons of atmospheric carbon, that we can build houses that do not burn and are impervious to rats and will stand for 200 years and then naturally biodegrade, that we can create a construction material that will be lighter and help workers have an easier job rather than a more difficult job, this whole long cascade of benefits. The message becomes clearer with every passing day, with every new thing we learn about cannabis. It is time for a massive shift in human behavior away from primitive extractive industries like timber and petroleum, away from chemical medicines whose side effects are worse than the diseases they're intended to prevent, away from a meat-based diet, away from houses constructed of toxic materials that make us sick instead of giving us safe shelter, and moving instead back to Mother Nature, back to the plants that sustained and nurtured us for thousands of years, years during which the planet and its creatures thrived instead of being imperiled, back when our water and air were still clean. What we learned from the pandemic shutdown, when industrial emissions dropped to their lowest levels ever and dolphins frolicked in clear water in the canals of Venice, is that there's still time. There's still time to save the planet, and hemp is the best way to do it. I know that many of you in the audience are already working hard for cannabis freedom, each in your own way, and I send my deep love and support to all of you. I also know that some of you are in difficult situations, places where cannabis is still highly illegal, and families where you have to hide your love of the plant, or jobs you could lose, or maybe you're even facing trial or imprisonment. And to those of you out there who are facing tribulations like that, please know and remember that if you love cannabis, if you love this plant, you are not alone. There are hundreds of millions of us all around the world. We are your sisters and brothers, and we will not forget you. Change is coming. Stay strong and never doubt that you are on the winning side of history. Until next episode, be well and stay free.